1: The title of the book, Medicine Under Attack and Other Essays. And the author is Dr. Clyde W. Johnson. And Dr. Johnson joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Doctor. Hello. Great to have you with us. You have quite a career as a family doctor, and you, at this point in your life, want to share your view and your opinions. And as you say, we are all entitled to our opinions, and this is mine. (laughs) Medicine under attack, it's a, I guess it is what it is, isn't it? The medical industry is really up in the air now. It's confusing to most, and we know one thing, it's very expensive.
2: Yes, that's right. Medicine's been under attack for uh, almost my whole career, ever since uh, our federal government decided that they wanted to uh, uh, take over uh, medicine and uh, all aspects of it uh, way back in the 1960s.
1: So it's basically bureaucrats thinking they know more than doctors of how to best administer the best medical care.
2: Uh, Yes, that's right, and they wanted to take it over without any real care about uh, what kind of damage uh, they could do.
1: So from your point of view, why is medical care so expensive?
2: Well, I think there's uh, part of it is that it's greatly controlled, and this is one of the uh, areas that uh, I addressed in the book the um, the cost of medical care was so expensive because of the controls their many demands the attacks on uh, medicine by especially the news media and government employees, government bureaucracies have uh, damaged it uh, to the extent that uh, many people question and uh, the doctors that are trying to uh, work best for their uh, uh, benefit but um, uh, for example um, often now patients demand uh, some expensive tests for instance that a physician may recognize as unnecessary because of the physicians medical knowledge and, and experience but then we find it difficult to refuse to have these tests done. In years past, the patients had more confidence in the physicians' ex- expertise. Um, that is, that's the consequence of the tax on medicine by, like I say, news media had been quite uh, eager to carry on and explain what federal uh, uh, bureaucrats and politicians had claimed and questioned uh, in their uh, press releases and the like over many many years
1: how many years of practicing
2: well i had uh... i i was I graduated from medical school in nineteen sixty one so it's been over fifty years that i've been either practicing medicine or retired and observing uh... uh, the, uh politics of medicine.
1: What do you think about Obamacare, this Affordable Care Act? uh, What's your view of it?
2: Well, I've always thought that the best medical care is provided by independent physicians trained to think through the patient's problems independently. Obamacare is centrally planned and is implemented, uh, aiming to push uh, physicians into treating patients' illnesses by protocols established by panels of bureaucrats in Washington. And frankly, that sounds like old Soviet Union central planning to me. We've already encountered uh, many problems of Obamacare. It was poorly planned to start with, and I think it will fail without major changes. And I think that's beginning to become quite apparent uh, to the general public. And to me, perhaps the failure was planned from the start, so it would be necessary to fix medical care by going to a single payer, a payer, namely the U.S. government. And this is all about putting the bureaucrats in control of about a sixth of the U.S. economy. After all, this, uh, attempts to have, uh, a socialized medicine has uh, been ever since, uh, well, the 1930s, for instance, uh, and Medicare was put in in about 1964, 65. Uh, Medicaid was put in uh, shortly after that. And these are all, both of these programs are somewhat socialized, even though they are somewhat uh, successful over uh, quite a long period of time.
1: Yeah, it seems the hardest part of this is that once you had something in place for so long with Medicare, Medicaid, uh, people, you know, in the end start to believe that they're entitled to it.
2: Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, the entitlement, uh, uh seems to be one of the big problems that we're coming up against in Obamacare. Um, actually, uh, over many, when I first started in medicine in nineteen, uh, in private practice, nineteen sixty four, the um, uh, most people paid their own way. They either paid their own way or they had some kind of insurance provided by their employers. Uh, I can remember uh, an office visit, nineteen sixty four, in a small town in Idaho where I practiced at the time, it was four dollars. Hmm. Obstetrical uh, care was one, was seven, seventy-five dollars when, and shortly after Medicare and Medicaid came in, uh, uh, obstetrical care, complete obstetrical care was raised to seven, from seventy-five dollars to a hundred dollars. Hospital charges, uh, for a small hospital in the small town in 1964 was, um, nineteen dollars a day for a in a private room, and $21 a day for a private room. After Medicare came in, uh, about three years later, those charges were raised to 25 and
1: $27. Well, the bureaucracy has to be paid for, right?
2: Uh, yes, it sure does.
1: It's nothing... Uh, there's no free lunch. It's um, or somebody has to pay for it, and this... Uh, As you look, you know, look over the industry with all your years of experience, uh, what's the answer today? I mean, we have this law now. How do we cut the cost of medical care? That's supposedly, you know, again, that's what uh, the administration has been advocating, the Affordable Care Act. Of course, it gives uh, medical insurance to everybody, but what's the way to cut the cost?
2: Well, I do have some ideas about that, although, you know, actually I, I think that others may be more uh able to do that than I. But some of my thoughts are that uh, uh many of the regulations that have been useless and slowing care uh, that I've observed during my career should be con- uh, cut out uh, entirely or at least changed so that they're not so harmful. Uh, there could be legislation to cut down on unjustified lawsuits, uh, for instance. Uh, this, that kind, kind of legislation could uh, decrease def- defensive uh, medical costs. Uh, then there's one of the other things that uh, if our bureaucrats and politicians would stop their attacks, that I have indicated in my uh, book, then uh, perhaps the uh, media wouldn't uh, carry on those unjustified attacks on medicine and affect people's uh, confidence in physicians and ask for more and more uh, care that they think they're entitled to.
1: And, of course, today the emergency room is, is like a regular doctor's visit for a lot of people.
2: Yes, it is. This is one of the things I've observed over many years. Uh, To to come to me in my office would be a relatively small charge. Even at the time when I retired, our office visit was about $50. And uh, a a comparable illness or injury to the emergency room would cost probably five to ten times that.
1: Right. So, you know, it's, it's a mindset that seems to be in the general public. Basically, hospitals can't say no, can they?
2: That's right. They're not allowed to. Uh, uh, Hospitals, uh, emergency rooms are not allowed to turn people away. And this is, I can't say that I disagree with that necessarily, but um, many of those uh, emergency room visits uh, could be uh, taken care of in urgent cares and. uh, Right physicians' offices uh, at much less cost if the public would be better educated to do so.
1: Because uh, the word is emergency. I mean, it sounds like it's uh, it's a whole lot more than if you've got a bad cold. <laughs> yes, it is. And people do show up at the emergency rooms with a bad cold. Now, I, I like what you're saying about ch- the United States should be training our own children to be physicians instead of taking so many foreign doctors from, uh, you know, other countries?
2: Uh, yes. Uh, I, I'm afraid that uh, that's happened over the past 50 years. Uh, um, President John Kennedy uh, was the one that uh, instigated the uh, uh, draw of foreign trained physicians uh, to the United States. And, you know, this is 50 years later. Why are we still having a shortage of physicians when we have very, very capable children? that should be trained as physicians in this country instead of drawing from uh, mainly India and the Philippines. Uh, currently also we're draining the uh, Philippines of their nurses. Um, many of the nurses in local hospitals are uh, Filipino. So, we, should, we should be training our own children, and I think this is a, a terrible thing. Uh, uh, shame when our country is not doing so.
1: And the way the media, I'm sure, has painted uh, doctors in general, you know, there, there's so much often uh, bad talk about doctors because they seem to be making all the money and that's why there's this out-of-control uh, cost of medicine that seems to be pointed at you, the doctor.
2: Well, that's one of the reasons i wrote this book uh, is that I wanted to point out that it wasn't just doctors that are the ones that are responsible for the high cost of medical care. A great deal of it has to do with bureaucracy uh, and our federal government rules and regulations and, um, and the tax that uh, they have done. Uh, I really feel that uh, physicians uh, are, are not the ones that are the biggest uh, beneficiaries of uh, these attacks, you know. The, uh, I'm sorry, but the uh, uh, our bureaucrats and politicians deserve a great deal of that blame of the cost of medical care.
1: Now, your title says "Medicine Under Attack" and other essays. What are the other essays and stories about?
2: Well, I I described uh, an episode that I had a few years ago uh, to. Uh, uh, bring a patient of mine home from Mexico after he had a, a stroke there. And um, it was quite difficult. Uh, I was unable to get uh, care for this uh, person in Mexico and had to bring him back uh, to the United States to get his care. And I, want, I just use that as an example of Where our care is so much better, I think, than at least many uh, other countries. I'm not saying we are, all the countries in the world are uh, as bad as the care that I saw in Mexico or the possible possibilities for the care that this uh, patient couldn't get in Mexico. But uh, anyway, uh, we do have good care in the United States and I just would like to see it maintained at that level.
1: With all that you see, with all that you've witnessed through your career, do you have a kind of a projection, a speculation of the future of medicine in the United States?
2: Well, I tend to think that uh, we're going to stay pretty well at the top, uh, but it's going to be very costly. Um, I think our care will continue to be good because I really have confidence in our, the people that go into medicine. Um, think positively, and they really want to uh, take care of people and do a good job. Uh, I think the ethics uh of our general uh, physician population is very good.
1: But the big, the big problem is government. That's correct. And it's going to be difficult to keep the cost down with the bureaucracy, especially as I noticed in this Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, they are going to hire 15,000 IRS agents. Now, what's that got to do with medical care? Well,
2: well, I sure don't know that.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're not uh, inexpensive, that's for sure. And, of course, we know about what the IRS is all about with all the latest news so it's uh, it's very complicated, complex, but uh, you give some simple, right, direct, uh, uh, shoot from the hip kind of opinions, and that's why we appreciate you, Doctor Johnson. Yeah, thank you. Well, this uh, uh, this book, "Medicine Under Attack" and other essays. How how do we get it, Doctor Johnson?
2: Well, there's uh, uh, it can be ordered through uh, various. Uh, bookstores uh, and also through the Ex Libris uh, Corporation um, and do you, do you want me to give their phone number or anything? Well like people that? can go
1: to Ex and find it very easily so that would be yeah. our, probably the easiest way to explain it to everyone well thank you Dr. Johnson, Clyde W. Johnson thank you for being with us on Ex Libris On Air
2: Thank you
0: Libras returns after these short messages.
3: Have you ever wondered why America is facing such a health care crisis? Then join us for Dr. Peter Devet Live every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Dr. Doctor! doctor. He'll answer your health care and medical questions and share with you his knowledge and opinions on topics ranging from holistic health care to spirituality and wellness. You'll find out about the roots of your health care challenges versus symptom management. The holistic approach, how the spirit, mind, and body connection is critical in both the development of illness and the solution to illness. How emotions are directly related to physical illness and how to read your body like a book. Dr. DeVette will also go through your personal questions and how you can navigate through the illness maze. Supplements, medications, therapies, treatment options, surgeries, all kinds of things related to your health. Dr. Peter DeVent live every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. We often ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirits Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on toginet.com. Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage naturespiritspeak.com If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit speak Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to
1: Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book: Green Gravy: Monster Bread and Other Adventures. And the author is Alice Brian. And Alice joins us now on Ex Libris on Air. Hello, Alice. Hi, Steve. Well, great to have you with us talking about your second book in your trilogy. Your first one started uh, back during the Great Depression and ended in 1939. This one starts December 7th, 1941. Of course, the bombing of Pearl Harbor starting World War II. And it covers the big band era, drugstore soda fountains. Boy, they were just fantastic. It's a shame we don't have those anymore. Swing dancing, courtship, marriage, marriage. You were married to a career military officer and, of course, living all over the place, including Japan, raising four children. Boy, as you look back on that, that, that was a whirlwind, wasn't it, Alice?
4: It certainly was. <laughs> certainly was. A lot was. of experiences.
1: A lot of experiences. So uh, the next book will start in 1966 and will end uh, the 2012-2013 era. So it's basically, my goodness, your whole life You've been, uh, you're you're a young lady, but you were born back in, let's see, 1925, right? That's right. So you have seen a lot of changes in this great country. I certainly have. Well, let's go back to December 7th, 1941. How old were you? I was 16. 16. My goodness, when you first heard that report, I guess it was on the radio with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, our President, what did you feel?
4: Well, we heard about it on on Sunday. Um, we we heard on the radio Sunday that Pearl Harbor had been bombed and, by the Japanese, and of course everybody said, "Where's Pearl Harbor?" And of course, then uh, we on Monday when we went to school, we were asked to uh, go to the gymnasium and. Uh, <clears throat> we had we were sitting in folded folded folding chairs and uh we had loudspeakers on and the president gave an an address uh telling that we were now in a state of war with Japan and uh that was the beginning of our entry into World War II and we just didn't know what to think we we were just shocked that our country was at war.
1: Did you have uh, older friends that immediately went to war?
4: There were uh, some seniors that decided to sign up right away. And the boys in our class, they were juniors. Mm -hmm. Uh, They wanted to, but they were too young. But eventually they left. Uh, Of course, the war lasted four years, so many of my friends and of course, my brother and uh, a lot of a lot of fathers even were in the war, and uh, cousins, just about every male that was eligible was was in it.
1: hmm
4: And uh, of course, some didn't come back.
1: No, no, they didn't. They gave the ultimate sacrifice, and for our freedom and liberty, something that many of us take for granted, and that is sad when people take it for granted. I'm sure you don't.
4: No. I have a great respect for all the services.
1: Right. So back then uh, all the young men go off to war. I mean, do you remember the change in the community when all that started to happen?
4: Oh, yeah. Um, Of course, we all had to do our part, too. We had a lot of gas rationing, and uh, we had... Food stamps that, uh, not, not like we have now, but, uh, we, we had coupons that we used in order to get sugar and flour and things because everything had to go for the servicemen. And the, you know, meat was, meat was shortened in supply. There was a lot of shortages.
1: Yeah, a lot of sacrificing at home as well.
4: That's
1: right. And which it should be uh, to support the soldiers. Uh, that was obviously World War II. It's uh, beyond comprehension, really, sometimes to think about uh, all that people did, and both here in this and on the home front, as well as, of course, the soldiers that had to. Just war as hell, as they say, right?
4: That's right. Yep. But But um, the we had victory gardens and we had uh no, we t- collected rubber tires that was for the war effort and uh well, we even had to save our grease drippings this was for glycerin for the for the soldiers for the for the uh, ammunition
2: mm.
4: and in fact mm. uh, I don't know it, there there was someone had a a sign in our town that said, Ladies put bring your fat cans in here, <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, you gotta collect the fat in something I guess, so you gotta collect it in a fat can wow, that's cute and I, and your book is peppered with many humorous stories,
4: oh yes, <laughs> there's a lot of funny things that have happened to me.
1: <laughs> of course, the big band era—it uh, was in full swing. Uh, I'm sure you love that music.
4: Oh yeah, we we were dancing and, and um, really enjoying that music.
1: And you're still dancing. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you my you have my husband
4: and I go dancing, and uh,
1: well, that's we wonderful. even go square dancing. Well, that's just wonderful. That's just wonderful. Now. I remember, I was born in 46, I remember drugstore soda fountains, I mean, they were just the place to hang out after school, and uh, that was a special, that was a special place, wasn't it?
4: It sure was, and uh, you could make a soda last for a long time <laughs> in a group of people, and just uh, talk and laugh. and
1: Yeah, just hanging out. Yeah. Just hanging out. Oh, uh, vanilla Cokes, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, mine was Cherry Cokes. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, Cherry. But there were vanilla, too. But Cherry Cokes, yeah. The cherry yeah. Cokes. Those were really popular. And, uh, of course, you know, uh, the swing dance scene. And when did you meet your husband? Was he already in the military?
4: Um, he had come. The war had ended, 1945. And he was working... In Chicago, uh, in the same building I was working in, and uh, I, I met him there. And uh, after we were married, he he was recalled for the Korean conflict, and so he decided, if he's going in again, he he might as well make a career out of it because he already had so many years in it.
1: Sure.
4: And so that. That's how he became a career officer.
1: How long did you live in Japan? Four years. Four years. Uh, wonderful years. So that was really good. That's your impression of that time oh, in your yes. life? Why?
4: Oh, there's so many so many wonderful things that um, happened there, and the, I, I just got to be friends with the people and understand their culture and... and uh, I, I just loved it. It, it was uh, different, and yet it was. I see that all people, no matter where they live, they they all have the same feelings. They they all want to to bring up their families and and have the best for them. And it it just uh, it was just a wonderful experience. to See something something a little bit different from our culture too.
1: Different cultures, different languages, but still humans. Right. Still with the same needs and desires and the same, just of love of life. Right. So how did your children uh, deal with uh, living in Japan?
4: Well, they, uh, my my three oldest ones, my two oldest ones wanted to, be as an Amer as American as they could, so they mostly wanted to stay on base with their own groups, and uh, they had a teen club that they went to. And but um, then the third one, he he'd go downtown and uh, in this little town and find some Japanese boys, and they'd have a pickup game of baseball or go. Checking out, uh, things in town together. And, uh, my little one, she was, uh, she started a Japanese, Japanese kindergarten. She started in a, a school and, uh, all of her friends were Japanese and she learned how to speak Japanese very quickly as a child does.
1: Did you learn how to speak Japanese?
4: I did because I started taking some Japanese dance lessons <laughs>
1: okay.
4: and uh uh this young lady was a beautiful young lady she she couldn't speak any English at all so eventually my vocabulary grew and because uh, cuz cause she'd come every day and we'd have lessons and then I was taking Thomason lessons which is like a it's a musical instrument it's almost like a guitar and um and flower arranging lessons and being surrounded by people who don't speak English I started to learn and uh, eventually I got so very fluent in in Japanese
1: and also got a teacher certificate in Japanese dance
4: yes uh, my teacher said that I was learning so fast and, and she felt that I could become the first Foreigner to have a teacher certificate if I passed this test, and I thought that shocked me because I didn't think of myself as a foreigner, but I was a foreigner, hmm. and uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, so I went for it, and uh, we worked hard, and I had to I had to have this Japanese costume on with a with a real heavy wig, one of those big wigs, you know, with the ornaments on them and everything, and and I passed the test, and so I did get my teacher's certificate.
1: Well, you have had a tremendous life, full, full of surprises and even some mishaps, uh, but you always look for the humor.
4: <laughs> I, I find humor in just about anything.
1: But you've also learned, and, and I guess, uh, you know, one of the themes of your book, just don't be afraid to take chances. That's, that's a real, that's kind of your life, isn't it?
4: Yes, that is. And, and experience new things. Don't be afraid.
1: Very important to learn. There's always something that you can learn, always opportunities.
4: Well, and if you don't try it, you won't. Uh, you know, you're going to miss out on things. Mm-hmm. So just take that first step and just wander out there and uh, and try something.
1: And of course, with your travels, you also learn, as you put it, you can find kindness and generosity in people all over the world. There's really good folks out there.
4: Oh, I you uh, if you uh, read some of these chapters, you'll see how kind and, and thoughtful and uh, you know people can be especially to to me a foreigner when i was in japan but not only in that country but in our own country too and uh we've I've met some wonderful people up in Brunswick Maine this is, was a remote station that my husband was stationed at and uh and in San Antonio, Texas, just everywhere. There, uh, there are people everywhere that are, are kind and thoughtful.
1: Well, your book has a unique, unique aspect of it because uh, each chapter is kind of like a, a little little story in and of itself. It, and it's great just before, you know, you go off to sleep just to kind of read a chapter. And I guess that's what people are saying.
4: Uh, that's what people are saying, but a lot of people say, you know, I think that I think that's a good thing because if some people don't want to read all the way through mm-hmm. uh, and get, uh, you know, that engrossed in a book. They can just read a chapter and there's the story and they go to sleep, but a lot of people say they stayed up all night. We <laughs> couldn't put, couldn't, it couldn't down. put it down. <laughs>
1: yeah, a page turner. Well, that's just tremendous and you're tremendous. My goodness, here you are. What an adventurer. Now you're talking about skydiving?
4: <laughs> that's what I was talking about.
1: <laughs> well, yeah,
4: I think that would be wonderful.
1: Yeah, well, that's, uh that's incredible. Uh, Alice, we we are impressed with uh, your writing and of course this is uh, your second book. Uh let's see the first one. What is it titled? Uh Holes in my shoes. Holes it's about in growing my up shoes. in the depression. Okay. Then that's a reality. And then of course this one, Green Gravy, Monster Bread and Other Adventures. Do you have a title for your next one that's still in progress? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> Not
4: yet,
1: no. Well, the Green Gravy, Monster Bread and Other Adventures covers twenty five years of your life and it sounds like uh boy well, you're you've got a lot more living to do.
4: Oh, I hope so. <laughs> well.
1: I'm sure you will. You've got a great attitude, and you stay busy, and here you are sharing your story. Everyone will really appreciate your story, Alice. Alice Brion, she's the author. Alice, tell us how to get your book.
4: Well, you can get the book on Amazon, uh, or you can get it in Barnes & Noble, uh, and you can also get it at my publishers, uh, exlibris.com. That's X-L-I-B-R-I-S, is uh, ex libris.
1: That's right, ex libris. uh,
4: I I hope that people find humor, and I hope they have a lot of laughs when they read the book, but there's a lot of poignant uh, stories, too.
1: Well, thank you, Alice, again for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you. Enjoyed it.
0: Libris returns after these short
3: messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LBL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on TogiNet. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for you to be a rock star. Get ready to rock with Rock Talk and Kirk Deswald and learn how to achieve rock star status in your industry. Every Tuesday afternoon at 2, 1 Central on Toginet.com. Craig Deswalt is the creator of the Rockstar System for Success. Craig will share easy tips and strategies on how entrepreneurs and businesses can use outside-the-box marketing strategies to stand out from the competition. Each high-energy show will feature interviews with celebrity rock stars as well as business rock stars. For more on Craig, the show, and the Rockstar Marketing Bootcamps, Camps, check out the website, Craig Deswald, D-U-S-W-A-L-T.com so you can learn how to be perceived as an expert and celebrity in your field so more people can be you to buy your services and products. Then, get ready to be a rock star with Rock Talk and Creme Does well, Tuesday afternoons at 2, 1 central on com.
0: Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, Reflections of a Cat Whisperer, and the author is Mary Ann Clifford, and I might add she is the cat whisperer, and Mary Ann joins us now on Ex Libris on Air. Hello, Mary Ann. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us. Uh, You are a unique, very unique, because you whisper to cats and they do what you tell them to do. Well, I guess you don't tell them, do you?
5: No, no. You never no. tell you a cat what requests. to do.
1: You make requests. <laughs> yes, I think all cat lovers understand uh, the the nature and the in the uh, personality of the cat. Uh, they uh, kind of uh, train us, don't they?
5: Exactly. We're staff.
1: We're, We're sta- the boss. <laughs> We're staff, but your book is really fascinating. I mean, it literally is about cats, 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 as you put it. Uh, And it's kind of your autobiography of your life because you see the world through the cat. You got it. Uh, You know, I mean, and and it's mostly about your relationship with cats and uh, what you've learned from them. And also you have a unique, being the cat whisperer, you help train cats to become therapy cats for those who are having struggles in life. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that.
5: Okay, I belong to an organization that is an animal-assisted therapy organization, and I have the only cats in the organization. So when I first joined, and it's going to be about maybe um, about 13 years ago, they didn't know what to do with cats. So I had the first... My first cat, Minnie Mouse. And through her, I was able to come up with the program on what to do with cats and for therapy. And over the years, we refined the program. And now, um, I'm refer- other people are- call me to ask me, what do we do to train a cat to be a therapy cat? And so I work with them on it.
1: that's really fascinating because certainly animals can really assist folks who, for whatever need they may have at that moment, uh, I could really see, of course, obviously with children and maybe the elderly, but others as well.
5: Yes, all ages. Uh, It's funny because uh, cats and dogs, uh, but my cats in particular, because I'm a little bit prejudiced here, um, they can break through barriers that humans can't. I have seen patients that have virtually, uh, who have had strokes, virtually have given up on life. They don't respond to anybody. They don't respond to staff, to family, nothing. And yet, when you bring them over to my cats, uh, and you see the interaction of the cat with the patient, all of a sudden you see that flicker of life come back.
1: Hmm. That doesn't surprise me. Uh... I'm a cat person, I'm a dog person, we've always had both around. Cats certainly are so unique and so even lovable at times when they want to be. <laughs> oh,
5: now my opinion is they're lovable all the, time. all the time. It's just sometimes they don't want a lot of touching.
1: <laughs> that's it. I guess that's what, and I guess that's kind of like adults. I don't know, we Sometimes we want to be left alone too, don't we?
5: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think they're more human than we are. <laughs>
1: Now, does your book offer insight into cat care?
5: Yes, all kinds of cat care. I have worked in all kinds of areas. I had trained to be a vet tech, and with that knowledge, when I first moved here, I wasn't able to find a job. So what I did was turn to home health care for cats. And through it, I have worked with cats that have uh, physical disabilities. I had a little boy a little uh, boy cat who was born, and he had paralysis in his back end with no expectation he'd ever be able to walk. Well, by taking what I knew, what people did with humans with therapy, a water therapy, um, I introduced him into a pool and made him work his back legs, and by the end of that summer, he was able to walk.
1: You got him into water? Uh-huh. Wow. Yes.
5: Um, he was used to getting baths, so he kind of looked at it as a humongous you know, sink and constantly. where's <laughs> the shampoo. Yeah. But when he realized there was no shampoo and mom was in the water, he was terrified at first. I mean, all he wanted to do was get out of that pool faster than lightning. But because of him wanting to get out of that pool, he started kicking his back legs.
1: Well, the big... And with po-
5: me holding them, he was able to respond and start moving them. And because he kept moving them and not putting a lot of pressure on them, he was able to get strength in them.
1: Hmm. Very interesting. Uh, Very creative and obviously uh, takes a special kind of cat lover to uh, do that. And you were able to be successful. How many cats do you have at home? More than one. (laughs) More than one. So the only way we find out, we have to come to your house and count, huh?
5: Yes, precisely. <laughs> precisely. And I'll I'll confirm any answer you come up with.
1: <laughs> well, we know there must be a bunch, and uh, I'm sure you take really good care of them. Um, how about dealing with the loss of a cat?
5: Yes. Um, you know, it, I think because of all the losses I've had to deal with throughout the years, I have a different outlook on life. When I was a child... My dad used to look at things and uh, see them differently. Uh, and we used to tease each other and I'd say, um, you see fairies? And he said, yeah. He said, life is magical. You should see fairies. And by taking that approach of seeing things differently, that when I lose a cat, I many times, of course, sit with them. Sometimes I have to let them go through you know, the gift of peace. And other times I let nature take over. And when I do, it's like you see things differently. Um, I look inward. Sometimes I feel my other heavenly kitties come and actually help with the transition. And you can see a peacefulness come over the animal, over my cat, as they start letting go.
2: Hmm.
5: And I think by watching the process... I have come to the conclusion that yes, there's more than this. Uh, I will miss my cat extremely so, but I also have a firm belief that one day my thundering herd up in heaven will come and greet me <laughs> as I make the transition. Right. So yeah, um so like I said, I have a kind of a different look outlook on uh death and dying. What's, because of working with my cats.
1: What would you say is one of the most difficult behavioral problems to deal with in cats? Fear aggression.
5: Because when a cat has fear aggression, they lose control and they don't see you. You're the monster, and it's real hard to deal with.
1: Hmm.
5: And a lot of times I work through um, a lot of patience. Just patience, 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 patience. But there have been uh, a few times when I've worked with cancer to have medical conditions that I didn't have the luxury of time, and therefore I would have to turn to medication to help calm the fear, and then start working with them.
1: Can there be too many cats in a home?
5: Yes. Yes. Uh, people don't realize that you know they need their space,
2: mm-hmm. and
5: if you have too many, um, it doesn't work, and you'll have behavioral problems.
1: Mm. And how do you choose a name for a cat?
5: Um, I kind of let the cat tell me. I watch the personality, and sometimes the cat will come with the name, and the cat will keep the name. Sometimes they come with a name that I feel needs to be changed to give them more—I guess—a uh, better outlook on the personality.
1: Now, there's a there's a story in your book and. Kind of titled "Circle of Life." Now, you you would like to highlight that? Go ahead and share that with us.
5: Okay, um, I um, raised a kitty cat that had partial paralysis, and I taught him how to walk, and I taught him to use the litter box on command. And when he was about six years old, um, there was an elderly Persian that came into my care. And Katsy also had paralysis in his back legs. And it wasn't from injury or birth or anything like that. It was the arthritis. And when Joseph and Katsy first saw each other, you would think that, I mean, it was a magical connection made because it was the first time Joseph saw someone exactly like he was and Katsy felt the same. Those two became inseparable and they would talk with each other. They'd follow each other around. And even though people say cats don't talk, they do. They talk to each other. They talk to us. And they formed a very special bond that uh, when Katsy was um, in the last stage of renal failure and he was dying, uh, it was very peaceful he was, um, and it was about seven o'clock at night, and I had him on my lap, and Joseph was clinging to me, uh, desperately asking me to help Coxie. And at that point, there was nothing that can be done. Coxie was just very gently going off into the next life, but Joseph didn't quite understand. And when the time came that Coxie drew his last breath, Joseph reached over with his paw, and I looked at Joseph, and he was crying. And cats do cry. I've seen it a couple of times. Hmm. And then the next day, I had stopped at the vet clinic to tell my cat's doctor what happened and that we lost Katsy. When I walked into the house, I heard Joseph singing. It was the same song that he and Katsy would sing back and forth with each other When Katsi was alive. And I heard Joseph singing it, and I thought, what's going on? So I quietly walked into the family room, and there Joseph was standing in the same spot where Katsi slept the day before. And he was, all the other cats were in a circle around Joseph, watching, and their heads were lowered, and nothing, nothing was, no one was moving, no one was speaking except for Katsi singing, I mean, Joseph. And I think what was going on was Katsi's soul came back to be with Joseph one last time, and he was saying goodbye. And I think the other cats sensed this. So I I stood at the back of the circle and just watched. And then when Joseph finished, he raised his head high and then lowered it, and he laid down on the floor. And then one by one, the cats either walked up to Joseph and gently nudged, Nuzzled them, or they kind of just backed up and went on to their different activities. And I was the last one to go over to Joseph. I sat down next to him, and I just started tickling his head. And, um, the only thing I could say to him was, uh, Joseph, I, you know, I said, you'll miss him. But I said, he'll always be with you. And, um, years later, when Joseph, he, uh, had a heart condition called hypertrophy cardiomyopathy. And in the last couple months of his life, Joseph started singing the song again that he and Consey had shared. And it had been years since I heard it. And when I'd hear Joseph singing it, um, I kind of would ask, I'd say, Joseph, what's going on? And he'd stop and come running over to me as if to say, nothing, nothing, nothing. And I think at that point, Consey. had come back, and Coxy was with Joseph, in helping Joseph in his transition to heaven. Because it was only, I think, two months later that I lost Joseph.
1: Well, now you know, everyone, why Marianne is called the Cat Whisperer. She has her book, Reflections of a Cat Whisperer. Uh, Marianne Clifford. Tell us, Marianne, how to get your book.
5: Okay, um, you can go to Barnes & Noble, you can go to Ex Libris, you can go to Amazon.com, or you can go to your local bookstore.
1: And if you want to find out more about cats and therapy, you can go to therapet.org, correct?
5: Yes, and just Google it, on, um, and just, you, know, you can just put Therapet, um, Tyler, Texas, and you'll get that too.
1: Well, thank you, Marianne, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air.
5: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors.
2: Right here on Ex Libris On Air.